He konai pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Next time you have an egg sandwich, spare a thought for the humble hen. That's Mike McRoberts introducing the 60-minute story Foul Play, F-O-W-L, back in 2004. That one-two combo of clock ticking and McRoberts' mellifluous voice hasn't been heard by New Zealand TV audiences in a long time. The presenter left the show a year later, and 60 Minutes has since stopped producing local stories. It's not the only documentary powerhouse to have shut up shop on local content in recent years. 2020, while still on air, mainly releases repackaged content from the US. Despite the continuing success of long-form journalism on TV One Sunday, documentaries have been fading from New Zealand screens for some time. Lately, though, TVNZ has taken steps to revive the genre, airing a series of NZ On Air-funded docos on TV One and its streaming service, TVNZ+. One engaging, often moving instalment came Tuesday last week when it aired No Māori Allowed. The documentary delves into the history of Pukekohi, where for decades Māori were subject to discrimination and sometimes violence. My mum turned around and looked at Just as she turned, he punched her in the face. He's bleed, she fell to the ground. Then he started kicking her. On the third time he lifted his foot, I jumped on my mum. No Māori allowed deftly navigate several tensions, first between local Pākehā and Māori who were there for the era of segregated movie theatres, but also between the people trying to bring the area's past to light and the kuia and komatua who lived through it and still bear the scars. In my mind, no one owns history. History belongs to everyone. It's our story, and it's our story that belongs to us. And there are many stories that you don't know that took place here in Pukekoe. But I just finished saying it's about how we move forward now. Kia ora. If No Māori Allowed is about historical racism, this week's documentary Crime, Need versus Greed trains its eye on a more modern form of racial and economic injustice. Host Tim McKinnell sums up the central theme of the documentary like this. Dishonesty crimes like robbery and burglary are on the slow decline, while fraud and deception, aided by technology, have overtaken everything else. While society and the media fixate on gang crimes, ram raids and other forms of street crime, white-collar criminals have been robbing us blind. Not only have they been robbing us blind, they've been getting away with it. McKinnell notes that courtrooms and jails are overflowing with poorer people who are disproportionately Māori. They are being prosecuted over sometimes minor street crimes while white-collar criminals, who are disproportionately Pākehā, often avoid punishment altogether. Here's tax law specialist Lisa Marriott delivering some staggering statistics on the double standards for fraudsters in the justice system. The sentencing for average tax offending of 287,000, tax offenders had a 22% chance of receiving a prison sentence, that's for tax evasion. Now for welfare fraud, for average offending of 67,000, so about a quarter, uh, they had a 60% chance of receiving a prison sentence. The lack of consequences for white-collar crime belies its scale and impact. 
In 2014, an investigation by the New Zealand Herald journalist Matt Nippet helped trigger a $1.7 billion fraud prosecution against the company's South Canterbury Finance. He makes this observation to McKinnell about the sums involved. That was a huge disaster economically. This was, you know, one of New Zealand's largest companies worth $1.5 billion, and it gave me an appreciation of sort of the, the scale of what was going on. That's a $900 million cost borne by every taxpayer in New Zealand, more than every treaty settlement combined in New Zealand's history. That's, you know, 100 years of benefit fraud. Given those figures, you have to ask why benefit fraud or street crime often gets so much more attention, not just from the justice system, but from the media, and what can be done to balance the scales. I put those questions to Matt Nippet. Kia ora, Matt. Welcome to Media Watch. Oh, thanks for having me, Hayden. So the documentary Crime, Need versus Greed, it talks about how the system needs to change its approach to prosecuting crime to actually prioritise the ones that are costing us the most. Do we, as journalists, need to change our approach to how we write about crime as well? Maybe not. I think we just need, to perhaps, uh, there to be a, a high level of numeracy. Uh, the problem with financial crime, particularly high-end financial crime, is the human brain does very strange things when it sees zeros, and so therefore the difference between 10 million and 100 million becomes quite um, ethereal. Um, but everyone can understand what a thousand dollars in the hand looks like. And everyone can see an image of someone ram-raiding a shop and go, I wouldn't like that to happen to me, whereas sometimes the financial crimes are very complex and hard to understand. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think, look, I, th- I think ram-raids are a, a quite a violent, shocking act and sh- should be covered. It also has the advantage of effectively being a, a pre-scripted sort of action heist movie with um, you know car crashes and getaways and splitting the loot, and it's all condensed down to this one moment of action, uh, whereas sort of white-collar financial crimes often occur very subtly, very carefully, very deceptively over years, sometimes decades, and it's, there's, it's uh, you know, the comparison between a, a uh, Jerry Brockheimer uh, action flick and something uh, much more slow and sedate, uh, a documentary spread across, say, six episodes. Exactly. So in the same way that white-collar crime is more complex, the stories about it are too, right? Like, I, I, I really have to steel myself to read a Matt Nippet story, muster up all of my brain cells. Uh, well, yes, often the... Because the, uh, the crimes, the ones that get to court, um, uh, usually have occurred over a long period. Often uh, investigators will reconstruct over the last seven years. Uh, and the trials can take ages. Look, I've sat through days of evidence just listening to one forensic accountant reconstruct s- several thousand transactions. Um, it is it is more complex. When you, it well, feels more complex when you're sitting in court. But really, I mean, the principle is the same. I mean, someone's stolen money from someone else. One's just done it uh, far more carefully and deliberately and less violently than the other. How do we get more coverage of this type of crime? Is it just that journalists are afraid of spreadsheets? <laughs> no, I, I would hope they're not afraid of spreadsheets. I, no, I think it's uh, more a matter of often white-collar crime has been consigned to the business section, um, while the sort of uh, general uh, crime and court reporting often goes to the general section. It's a problem, though, isn't it? Because the documentary talks about how these, the lack of consequences for this type of crime, the lack of investigation for this type of crime, is causing distortions in the justice system. So... 
is the amount of coverage of it compared to the amount of coverage of normal crime creating distortions in the media system. I'm always in favour of more fraud stories, but then again, I'm effectively a fraud reporter. I think it, when I was at the Sunday Star Times, um, I was nicknamed Fraud Boy. I'd like to think now I'm sort of more fraud man. Yes. But how to solve this? Um, a bit more, as I mentioned, a bit more numeracy from reporters and understanding uh, how significant some of these larger cases are. I've covered some individual cases that are equivalent to like an entire decade of benefit fraud, for instance. You know, all the benefit fraud in New Zealand for 10 years is equivalent to this one case. And I think it's important to uh, point out for readers that some of these cases are alarming and we should be paying close attention because that $100 million lost isn't just $100 million from some insurance company that's likely to be, you know, a 1,000 families who have lost their nest egg. And a million that might see their insurance premiums go up. Or if, you know, the government has to bail it out, suddenly that's another wee whack on your, on, on your tax bill each year. There's a shocking statistic that you mentioned in the documentary. I think it's that South Canterbury Finance, did, bailing that out uh, costs more than every treaty, treaty settlement put together. It costs, you said, more than 100 years or 100 years of benefit fraud put together. Yeah, well, certainly when South Canterbury went under in 2010... Um, the amount paid out, I think it was $1.6 billion, was pretty much equivalent to what had been paid out to treaty settlements at the time. I should note that South Canterbury had a 10-year liquidation process and the Crown managed to haul back sort of $800 million. But the point there wasn't to say um, we're spending too much on one or the other, but rather than just this one corporate failure was so enormous, it's, you know, it's a percentage point of GDP. It's equivalent to all our efforts to date to sort of wrestle with historic injustice. And it would be really good to understand what led to this so you can hopefully prevent it happening again. And I think that's something um, regulators and authorities need to take on board as well because letting a couple of those big cases slip through the cracks can have enormous consequences, you know, far worse than um, a rogue gang of ram raiders. I think the the big cases do get covered, and and to be fair, there's quite a lot of coverage I've noticed in recent years. I think this is partly through trends that um, there's been a lot more coverage of sort of the the personal scams and frauds. You know, the the stuff you get sent through texts, you know, encouraging you to to click here for a refund or to collect your package, uh, and often those are just um, levers for scammers to get in, and they'll try cleaning you out one way or another. And there has been more coverage of that recently, and that that's been quite heartening because those are uh, individually, sort of more than most burglaries would net. Is this another area where open justice, your court reporting, uh, public interest journalism funded program, is actually helping? Because I think there's, I've covered some scammers and some people that have defrauded others. I mean, it's great to have more coverage from court, um, and it's great that my colleagues at Open Justice are doing that. Um, but I think the real big problem, as uh, Tim McKinnell highlighted in that doco with white collar crime, is reporting rates are actually extraordinarily low. Often um, victims don't see uh, complaining to authorities as a way to get their money back because it's not the job of police to get your money back. It's not the job of serious fraud officers to get your money back. Often by the time you realise you've been done over in this way, the money's already gone. Uh, so you've got nothing to gain and you have uh, reputational damage to lose because no-one wants you know, their, uh, your business partners or your bank um, to think you're, you know, to ask the question, you know, how could you be this stupid to let this happen? Um, so often a lot of these cases are sort of quietly um, settled where they'll try to get as much money back from the offender as possible and then they'll, they'll be left to go on their way. So I don't think putting more reporters in court will help, would allow us to capture really the true scale of what's going on. 
The documentary does a really good job of highlighting racism and classism in the justice system. There's an example that I think of, a woman talking about conviction rates for white-collar criminals that have stolen $287,000 on average, was 22%. Benefit fraudsters uh, that stolen $60,000, so I think it was about a quarter, uh, they get convicted and sent to jail at a 60% rate. So is there racism and classism at play in the media sector as well? Do we spend disproportionate amounts of time and energy condemning lower-level offenders that come from more desperate backgrounds? I think it's, it's more structural um, and also economic. The issues you get with uh, crime reportage in sort of the mainstream media is that often it comes from court, and courts are a reflection of wider problems. So you will tend to get disadvantaged people in the district court, for instance, facing charges. Uh, on the other side of it, when you're looking at sort of white-collar crimes, which, you know, uh, typically are committed by those who are well-off, uh, largely white, largely male, largely older, uh, but that group uh, often has resources for lawyers. I mean, I've run into suppression orders many, many times. Uh, basically, every story I write in the space gets legally vetted sort of maybe uh, dampens down the reporting, but also slows it down enormously. I mean, it's not something you can sort of crash out day after day. It's more of a week-by-week process. I think that you <laughs> used to boast about uh, that you've cost uh, media companies more in lawyer fees than any other single reporter. Is that still true? Uh, no, no, because uh, the ones that um, screwed up and had to settle uh, would undoubtedly have cost more. Yes. Just as they do in the justice sector, though... For all these reasons, including our legal system and the amount that it costs and for, for lawyers to vet all of your stories, but do white-collar criminals get an easier go in the media as well? Well, easier than other criminals, yes, absolutely. I mean, um, it's, they'll tend to get covered less. I mean, partic- and also, in the before things hit court, you've got this big issue, and I know there was a lot of... Um, reflection after the global financial crisis, that if you have doubts about a... If you publish that you think uh, this entity is dodgy and will collapse and you'll lose all your money, um, if they did collapse, would be at a... Like an arguable case pointing to you saying, you caused the collapse of my $400 million business uh, and that's what I'm going to sue you for. So it's um, really... I mean, in terms of defamation risk, that's the big one I saw 10 years ago that there was a widespread concern amongst uh, the sort of well-informed financial sector that many of these finance companies were very, um, very shaky ground. Um, But no-one could really say it publicly. So it was all sort of hedged with sort of long, dense um, discussions about balance sheet structuring and saying, maybe do they have enough working capital? When really between the lines, it was basically um, a flashing red light. Yeah, I mean, that's, that really does slow down the process. I, I don't see an easy way around that, but um, that's the, uh, the issues, the, sort of the coalface white-collar reporter faces. Matt, you started out at the NBR doing this sort of stuff. Do we still have the same kind of dedicated business press that we did back then? Have we lost a little bit of our uh, business reporting ecosystem, business desk and others notwithstanding? Uh, yeah, I mean, there have been casualties since then. I mean, I think when I started, uh, the Independent was still running. Uh, that obviously got swallowed by um, Fairfax, then stuff, and then magic away. 
stuff itself seems to focus a lot more on sort of consumer news. Um, but also in that time, you've seen the rise of Business Desk, which is like a really solid business news publication. I mean, they um, I think they give us at the Herald a pretty good run for our money, which is probably why um, NZME bought them. Yeah. Um, is there enough business? What is there? Never be enough business reporters. I think um, it's a really uh, it's not a n- neglected round, but it's an extremely important one. Because it's uh, you're sort of looking at uh, how the world works, how the economy works, but also it's where um, media companies can make money from advertising. I mean, it's if any if any part of the newsroom should be expanded, it's clearly mine. <laughs> it's the problem that the the people that want to go into journalism they don't often have brains like that, and I count myself among this. Is it that the people in our industry don't have the right types of brains and right types of dispositions? I don't, I, I used to think I didn't have that sort of brain. Um, but then I was uh, made redundant and basically the only job I could get was a business reporter at NBR. And, you know, if you give it a go, I think you'll find it's a lot more straightforward than um, you've uh, conditioned yourself to, to fear. You've mentioned there are other reporters doing great work in this area. Do you feel a little bit lonely in your round? And how do we produce more Matt Nippets? <laughs> uh, well, you should all learn how to use spreadsheets because they're amazing. I I don't do anything fancy with them. I just mainly use them to add numbers up because um, it's like an automatic calculator. It's amazing. I mean, I sort of got where I am with this just doing like one first-year accountancy paper at Vic. Um, I think I got a B for it too. And that just sort of understanding the basics of a balance sheet so when you read an annual report, you don't think it's some sort of alien document and you can sort of flick through and, again, read, always read from the back. That would be my advice. I mean, it'd be great to see, you know, some board accountants deciding, actually, I'd rather not be writing very uh, bland notes to the accounts. Instead, I'm going to, you know, write the same note in a more interesting way on the front page, which is effectively how I see a lot of my work going. Just like Tim McKinnell, in a way, former police detective now talking about injustices in the justice system. Yeah, well, Tim's doing great work. I mean, I've um, used him as a source for many other stories. But, I mean, he's freed a man from prison, which is actually even better than putting someone in there. Thank you very much, Matt Nippet. No worries, Hayden.